Hello, fellow foodies. On this episode, we're going to dive into the stories behind one of my favorite summertime fruits, figs. As a kid, honestly, I was never a huge fan of fig-based cookies. I'd only had them as dried fruits. But my mind was totally changed when I first encountered my first lush, ripe fig tree during fieldwork in southern Italy. I plucked a large green-skinned fig off of a tree, and as I bit into it, the rows of pink flowers inside were revealed. The flavor and texture were just incredible. This delicious treat was the result of an interesting relationship between the plant and some local insects. Do you want to learn more? Well, I have the perfect guests for you today. Dr. Mike Shanahan's work weaves together the mythology, history, and ecology of one of the world's most diverse group of plants, covering their starring role in religion to their potential to restore rainforests, halt the loss of threatened and endangered species, and even limit climate change. Mike is a freelance writer and a journalist with a doctorate in tropical rainforest ecology. His work focuses on biodiversity and climate change, and he is the author of Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Mike. Thanks, Cassandra. Thanks for having me. It's been, uh, it's been in my mind for a few days looking forward to this, and I'm really excited to be talking about figs again. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I've had your book on my bookshelf for some while, and first of all, I love the cover, and it's a just beautifully written story about such a fascinating species. Why don't we start there? Can you tell us a little bit about the Moraceae family and the genus Ficus and, and what we find within that group? Well, the Moraceae is quite a big family. It includes mulberries, and it includes famous fruits like the jackfruit and the breadfruit that you find in Southeast Asia and increasingly in supermarkets around the world. But the, the biggest uh, genus inside that family is the, is the ficus genus, the fig trees. And there are more than 800 species of these plants. They spread all around the world, mostly in the tropics and subtropics. And they're incredibly varied. So you can have tiny little shrubs that are, that are fig species. You can have regular looking trees. In the rainforest, you find creepers and climbers. And then the most awesome ones really are the strangler figs. And these are the, the fig trees that start out in high up in the canopy where a seed is dropped by a passing bird or bat. And then they send their roots down to, uh, to the ground. And they also send more roots out that encase the host tree. And so they can actually outlive the host tree once they've become stable themselves. And even bigger than this, you get a group of strangler figs called the banyan trees. And uh, these can look like a small forest from a distance because they're so big. And they, they do this by sending out pillar roots from each of their branches, which then become as sturdy as a tree trunk in itself. So these things are really, really massive structures. Yeah, I, I can recall the first time I saw a strangler fig, I was hiking in Belize and it looked like a ghost plant, you know, because it formed this amazing circle around another tree that had long since passed um, and was gone. And so you had this hollowed out ghostly uh, structure. It was just um, amazing to see. 
Yes, they're very eerie things to look at because the, the roots that have descended down from up above, they look almost like molten wax. Um, they're, they're very unlike most plants to look at. They look almost animal in a way. Yeah, and banyans, while those are, those are fantastic figs as well, um, you know, I grew up in South Florida and spent a lot of time also down near Miami and they have some gorgeous, huge banyans in, in Southern Florida. And uh, as kids, we would swing on kind of the, the, I guess they were the aerial roots that are hanging down. And that's right. Yeah. And you've encountered these in, in amazing places. Can you tell us a bit about the places where you've worked and studied? I, I think you've also done some work. Was it in Borneo? That's right. I was uh, based in Borneo for, for a couple of years during my doctoral research. And I was based in a national park called Lambia Hills National Park in the Malaysian part of Borneo. And we were very lucky there that there were about 80 species of figs in that national park alone. So everywhere you went in the forest, you would find different kinds of fig trees. Some of them were so strange that they were producing their figs at ground level or even underground. Some of them produced their figs directly from the tree trunk. Um, and some of them were obviously producing their figs high up in the canopy. So we had lots of different figs at different levels in, in the rainforest and, and a huge variety in one place. That's amazing. And were there, were there many edible fig species in that forest or out of these 800 species relatively, how many can be eaten by humans? Well, at least 200 are eaten by humans, according to uh, what's been published in the academic literature. And in fact, any of them could be eaten by humans, really. And, and in our evolutionary past, any of them would have been eaten by our ancestors. The thing is that some of them don't really taste that great. Um, I've tried quite a few in my time, and often they're a bit um, unpleasant to taste. They're not so sweet. They're nothing like the ones that have been cultivated over thousands of years to uh, to these extremely sweet forms that we have now in our supermarket figs. Yeah, and I think one thing that's fascinating about the figs that we are familiar with um, is, is their, their morphology. A lot of people perhaps aren't familiar with you know, the structure of the fig fruit. Can you walk us through that? What are we actually looking at when we hold a fig in our hands? So the big misconception is that the fig is a fruit. It's not at all. It's, it's a hollow ball that is lined with flowers. And if you tear open a fig, you will see all these uh, very small structures inside. They're the flowers and they never normally see the light of day. Um, what makes figs special is that each species of, of fig has its own tiny little wasps that pollinate those flowers. And in turn, the, the tiny little wasps can only breed and lay their eggs in the figs of their partner species. Um, in many cases, this is a one-to-one -one relationship, and sometimes it's that the fig has a couple of pollinators. But it's, it's an extremely tight relationship, and it's been around for about 80 million years since before the dinosaurs, the last big dinosaurs went extinct. And since then, it's been becoming tighter and tighter and tighter. So you have this extremely tight relationship. If you look at a fig, you might see a hole at the, at the, the far end of it. That, that's uh, the hole that the pollinator wasp has to go through, carrying her pollen and, and uh, a load of eggs waiting to be laid. 
she enters the fig through that hole and then walking around inside, she will pollinate some of the flowers and she will lay her eggs in some of the others. Wow, so, so we're looking at this inverted ball of flowers that's pollinated by the wasps. And so do these insects, do they remain inside of the, the fig itself or are they able to emerge? Usually they stay inside. The, the, once the female arrives, she, um, she only has really one job and that's to lay the eggs. And often on the way in to the fig, the tunnel that she goes through is such a tight squeeze that her wings will be wrenched from her back and her antennae will be pulled from her head. So she's, she's lost you know, most of what makes her a, a functional creature in the world. And inside she will lay her eggs and eventually she will die there. Um, some time will pass, the eggs will develop, the, the larvae inside the eggs will develop and eventually they will hatch themselves. The males and females inside the fig will mate and then in many species the males will, will bite a hole through the outside, through to the outside of the fig so the new females can escape. Um, and in some cases they actively load themselves with pollen before they go and off they fly looking for another fig of the same species that's in the right state ready to receive them. Wow. wow. That's such an interesting um, relationship between, between the figs and their pollinators. Are there concerns around um, pollinator declines when it comes to figs? I know that there's a lot in the literature around, you know, bee population declines, but I'm not that familiar with what's happening right now with wasps, and especially in kind of industrial cultivation of figs. Well, well, the good news for industrial cultivation is that some of the varieties that we eat now don't require pollination. So they, uh, they can just go ahead and produce tasty figs without needing the pollinator because we've uh, developed these varieties over thousands of years. In, in other cases, we know that uh, the, wasp, the wasps have some vulnerabilities. There have been cases where local pollinator wasp populations have, have gone extinct. Um, in Florida, this happened after Hurricane Andrew in, I think, 1991. In the field sites I was working at in, in Borneo, there was an intense drought for some months back in the late 90s, and all of the wasps uh, went locally extinct in the national park where I was. So for a long time, there was, uh, there was no pollination of figs, no ripe figs being produced, and, and less food for, for the wildlife that eats the figs. But in time, the pollinator populations bounce back. The, the good news about this is these figs is that a single tree can produce millions of pollinator wasps in one night if they're all emerging at the same time. And these wasps can also travel vast distances. They've, they've been uh, clocked 50 kilometers out at sea on, on traps on boats. And uh, they travel further than any other pollinating insects. So even if there is some local disturbance to the wasp population in uh, natural habitats, so long as there are some nearby, they will repopulate. The big question though is about climate change and about raised temperatures because these very small insects are quite susceptible to changes in the external temperature. And if they get too hot too quickly, they die quickly. So um, as the climate changes, as the planet gets warmer, we don't really know what this means for the relationship between the figs and their pollinators overall.
Hmm. And that has a cascade effect, right, on the ecosystem. Can you tell us a bit more about the dependence of wildlife on fig trees? Yes, well, wildlife depends on fig trees more than it depends on any other kind of fruit trees all around the world. The, the, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that there are so many different types of fig trees in so many different places, and they present their figs in ways that are acceptable to lots of different types of animals. So some produce smelly green figs, which bats love particularly. Some produce uh, red figs that monkeys or birds might prefer. Um, but the main reason that they're so important is because of this relationship with the wasps. Uh, an adult fig wasp can only live for a couple of days and she has to find the right kind of fig to lay her eggs in and to, and to pollinate. And that means that across an area, you always have different uh, members of, of a species of figs with their figs at different stages. So some of them are already always waiting to receive a pollinator wasp. And the flip side of this is that there's always some ripe figs waiting to be eaten by animals and, and have their seeds dispersed. And so researchers have described figs as keystone resources. If you imagine a, a bridge has a keystone that keeps all of the other blocks in place, uh, the, the, the argument is if you remove figs from a, a tropical rainforest system, so many other things would suffer and the ecosystem could itself collapse. This is because the, the fig trees feed so many different types of wildlife, but also that those wildlife species disperse the seeds of thousands of other plant species. And worldwide, we, we've got records of more than 1,200 species of birds and mammals eating figs, uh, everything from elephants to monkeys. There are 200 species of parrots and pigeons that do this. There are also records of stranger creatures eating things like fish or tortoises and lizards. So they, they really do feed anything that needs a fig in, in their area. That's amazing. Yeah, and you, and you think definitely it's important that we continue to have figs in these wild environments. Um, I wonder, could you tell us a bit about the human relationships with figs? So we know that there are a number of species that are eaten by humans, but beyond the edible properties of these, are they used in medicine? Do they have religious importance um, or special cultural importance to different groups? Yes, to all of those things and, and many more things really. And one thing that became clear to me as I was writing my book is that the relationship uh, that humans have and have had with figs goes back right to the very start and and you know to our pre-human ancestors also just as figs are incredibly important to primates today in all sorts of ecosystems they would have been important to our pre-human ancestors long long ago and uh, there is some research even based on the feeding habits of wild chimpanzees that fig eating might have helped our pre-human ancestors to develop their big brains and also the opposable thumbs uh, that we have that, that set us apart from, from other species. In terms of pharmacies, there, there are um, many traditional medicines that draw on fig leaves, fig latex, um, the bark of fig trees, the roots of fig trees, and you can find these medicines in the Amazon, 
in, in the Congo Basin, in Southeast Asia, in Australia. So all across the world, wherever people have gone and found figs, they've also found medicines within those fig trees. In, yeah, terms, of, in terms of culture, well, where, where to start? There's, there are so many civilizations that, uh, for, for which figs, domesticated figs, were a, a really critical uh, food resource. The ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, the Sumerians, um, and in terms of religion, you won't find uh, any kind of plant species that appears in so many religions and cultural traditions around the world than the fig trees. They are uh, they feature in every major religion. They're the most often mentioned uh, plant in the Bible. They are really important in Hinduism, in Buddhism. The, the Buddha is said to have uh, attained enlightenment whilst meditating beneath a kind of fig tree. And you will find fig trees of that species planted at Buddhist temples all over the world. There, there are so many connections between uh, people and fig trees around the world that, uh, that there, it seems that there are also some commonalities. And I think some of those common things go right back to uh, some of our early days as a species, such as uh, the cultural taboo against chopping fig trees down, which you can find in very diverse cultures in South America, Central America, in parts of Africa, across the Pacific as well. So many different peoples have said, if you're going to chop trees down, Chop anyone you want down, but don't chop the fig trees down. And there are, and there are good reasons for that. Yeah, no, I, one, one particular fig that's coming to mind when thinking about, you know, the taboos against cutting them down and also the importance of fig latex is um, the species known as Ficus insipida or ohe, um, grows in the Amazon. Are, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, um, the ficus insipid is also a very important um, species for wildlife as well in the Amazon. Yeah, I was I was fascinated by it because um, I learned when I was working there that traditional healers um, will take the latex and mix it with fruit juice and then give it to children that suffer from um, intestinal helminths. So it's a vermifuge, helps to get rid of worms in the belly. Um, but at the same time, it can also be quite toxic. And so you have to be very careful of dosage. And you see that with, with many types of medicines. And other fig latex uses I've observed have been also to treat warts. Do, do you know of other uses of, of fig latex besides vermifuge and for, for topical wart remedies? Um, in some cultures, the latex is used to... Um, to help scars to heal or to, or to treat cuts. Mm. So it's, it's used as almost like a sticking plaster and directly applied to the skin. Um, and because of the, the, the visual appearance of the latex as a, a kind of white sap, it's often been used in some cultures um, to encourage breastfeeding, to, to help women who are not able to produce breast milk. Mm -hmm. and, in, in that case, I'm, I'm not so sure that it's actually an effective treatment or one that is just being applied because it, it looks like milk. Because it looks like it, yeah, yeah. Well, from, a, from an evolutionary perspective or from a plant, the plant's perspective, I guess, why do plants in the Moraceae family create this milky white latex? It's a defensive thing, uh, um, mostly, because 
Many plants produce a, a latex to protect themselves from being eaten by little insects and bigger creatures that might want to, to bite into their stems or their leaves. And in the figs themselves, the actual fig fruit, often they're quite full of latex when they're, when they're um, not ready to be eaten. So while the wasps are still inside developing and while the seeds are still developing, the, the latex content of the fig will be quite high. But as soon as the wasps depart and the fig fully ripens, it pumps in sugar to make the fig sweeter and it withdraws the latex, suddenly making it more uh, appealing to an animal that might come along, eat those seeds and disperse them later in the day. Wow, that's amazing. It's just such a good example of how responsive plants are. You know, I think a lot of people have this misconception of plants just being static creatures that don't really change, but they're constantly um, doing things like, like you said, defending themselves and then changing the, the chemical makeup of their fruits to encourage dispersal. That's really neat. Yeah, they also use uh, very specific chemical signals when, um, when attracting their pollinator wasps. So that the, the wasps are flying high in the sky, being carried along by the wind, and they're waiting until they can detect a very specific signal that comes from their type of fig tree. So there might be many fig trees of many species down below, but until they smell the one that they want, they won't drop out of the, uh, out of the sky and, and then use their wings to fly up to the, to the tree. So the fig trees all produce a cocktail of chemicals and uh, each one is different. So it's almost like a, like a signaling perfume. That's really neat. Yeah. Well, going back to this idea of the role of figs in culture, um, one fig that I'd love to discuss is Ficus religiosa. Can you tell us a bit more about that one and what does it look like and what, what role has it played in, in human culture? Well, this is one of the strangler figs that you find in uh, in India mostly and other countries around India. Um, it is a, a, a quite an elegant looking strangler fig. It's not one of the, the, the ones that becomes a giant banyan, but it has some beautiful leaves with extremely long drip tips on them. And um, as the, the, the leaves, which are a little bit stiff, as they beat together again, uh, against each other, in the wind they make a nice noise and lots of writers in antiquity have, have written about this noise and this is meant to be the, the, the soundtrack that the Buddha was listening to whilst meditating beneath one of those trees. The, the, tree, the species itself is, um, is sacred not only in Buddhism but also in Hinduism um, and it, it appears to have been revered way back to, to the time of the, the Indus Valley civilization. So, the very first illustration of any tree in South Asian art was, was about four and a half thousand years ago. Um, and it was by the Indus Valley people who, who used this picture and showed an image of what looked like somebody uh, delivering a, a human sacrifice of a head to a tree. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Are there are there other really key species you can think of that that like have played a tight role like that? I'm thinking of of um, you mentioned in the Bible. What which uh, which fig species have been mentioned most frequently in the Bible? Well, in the Bible, there are there are two fig species that that um, really are present in the area. One of them is Ficus carica, which we all call the 
the common fig or the edible fig. And the other one is Ficus sycamorus, which is um, a, a much bigger tree. You find it in much of Southern Africa where its pollinator exists, but it also occurs north of the Sahara in Egypt and in other countries around where it doesn't have its pollinator. So this is a really interesting one because somehow the Egyptians thousands of years ago had this tree, but they didn't have the pollinator wasp. And they worked out somehow that if you make a tiny little cut in the fig with a, with a sharp blade, you can trick the tree into thinking that the, uh, the fig has been pollinated and that the wasps have departed and it then ripens those figs. So thousands of years ago, they worked out how to do this. They, they tricked the trees and they grew many large numbers of them. And this is one of the main foods that people were eating back then, fresh and dried. That's amazing. That's, that's so amazing because that shows that they were also observing then what's happening um, in the natural world to figure that out. That's really, that's really cool. They, they also used trained baboons to, to harvest the figs as well in some cases, which is, which is pretty neat as well. <laughs> wow. That's great. Um, well, what are some of the most interesting interactions that you've observed in your work in the field between animals and figs? Well, the, one of the great things about studying fig trees is you can turn up to a, a big strangler fig with a ripe crop and you will be guaranteed to find wildlife. And it, at, at times it can be a race just to, to catch up with all of the arrivals and departures of birds and mammals at one of these trees because so many come to feed um, and these trees are so large that they can have as many as a million figs on them. Uh, there's plenty for everyone. And uh, it's great when you, you, when you start the day very early and you're there just before dawn and you can, you can see the, the arrivals. First of all, it may be some squirrels and some tree shrews and then some of the larger birds come along. Eventually some monkeys might come along too. And at nighttime, it's a different shift entirely. So you might have a creature like the binturong, a shaggy, hairy, nocturnal animal, or fruit bats coming in to feed. So overall, these things are like a, a pop-up restaurant that just appears in the rainforest, and for a few days, everyone gets their feed, and then the lights go out. There are no more figs, but another one will be fruiting not far away. That's fascinating, yeah. When you mentioned earlier, too, this... this um that some figs can fruit underground. What is that about? Uh, that's a pretty strange phenomenon, really. There are some trees in Borneo um, where the, the tree produces these runners at the bottom of the, the trunk. And on these runners, the figs appear. And they're mostly in the leaf litter. Some of them are actually underground, which is, which is bizarre, really. We don't really know how the wasps get in and out of those ones and they're, they're very poorly studied and, um, and extremely strange. But what they do is they feed a, a whole different group of animals that, that can't make it up to the higher figs. So they, even these trees are supplying quite a variety of creatures such as small rodents or mouse deer or birds like pheasants. Wow. I know a lot of your work is focused on biodiversity and climate change. And could you tell us a bit about how figs can contribute to forest restoration? 
Yes, um, we've, we've found in some of this, the work we've done that fig trees are very good at recolonizing areas that have been you know, deprived of all of their vegetation. And we've studied this on volcanoes where fig trees are often the first things to start appearing even in bare lava and germinating there. And once the fig trees arrive and uh, start producing fruit, they can begin attracting other species of vegetation because they because they attract in seed dispersing birds and, and mammals. And people have started using fig trees to do this in a variety of different places. In Thailand, they've been using fig trees amongst others to reforest an area and the exact aim is to, to attract the seed dispersers from other places. In Costa Rica, people have been, uh, researchers have been chopping off two meter branches off a mature tree and sticking it in the ground as a, as a brand new instant tree. And again, these trees are seeming to um, establish themselves very well and, and start producing figs very quickly. And once more, it's, it's a case of them being magnets for, for the wildlife that can then uh, disperse the seeds of other species and help a, ref, uh, help a forest to, to restore. Um, now people are taking this bit further and, and starting to, to use drones to fly seeds out to areas that are hard to reach and, and just spray out uh, fig seeds with a hydrating gel in them so that they can kickstart rainforest regeneration that way. So there are lots of different things going on in different places. People are, are starting to realize the benefits of working with these species because they, they have superpowers. That's awesome. That's really cool. And where, where would you love to see this kind of research go in the future? Do you, I mean, do you have like, if, if resources were not an issue, like what, what would be the ultimate kind of um, study on figs and climate change? Well, I think it would be good to see uh, how quickly fig trees can be used to restore not just forest cover, but, but real diversity of, uh, of forests and also ensure that the, the seed dispersers can continue to function and be protected in those areas because it's all well and good planting a load of fig trees, but if the, if the seed dispersers are still being hunted, uh, like large hornbills or, or fruit bats or primates, then um, ultimately the project will fail. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. Is we have to really keep in mind the full the full ecosystem and all the different elements to it. That's really important. Um, well, as we as we get closer to wrapping up, I guess on a on a food perspective do you have any favorite fig recipes that you really enjoy i mean as someone that studies this uh this family i think maybe you have some some interesting ones i, I really like figs on pizza um that's that's something that if i see a fig on on offer on pizza i'll always be choosing that one <laughs> that's great that's great i just made a fig leaf liqueur um this uh spring with the fresh fig leaves basically you know you 
create a simple syrup with the leaves and uh, then let it sit overnight. And then you cut it 50, 50 with gin. So that (laughs) (laughs) helps it to store. Um, But it's just such a rich flavor. I think there's so many different ways to use um, even the more, the more common um, edible figs. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They're often, figs are often used in perfumes as well. Oh, really? That's neat. That's really cool. Well, um, and then I guess one last question I have is, are there any special um, parts of mythology that you'd like to wrap up the episode with? Um, I know that you, we've covered a lot of the role of figs in, in history, but do you have any other cool stories to end with? Well, there's some, some cool stories from Kenya where um, there, there are sacred fig trees for lots of different peoples in Kenya and, um, and across Africa. So that's very common that different kinds of fig trees have, have been revered in different places. But in, in Kenya, the, uh, there's a large kind of fig tree called a mugumo tree. And it grows very large and it's sacred to the Kikuyu people who, who say that it's, it's the representation on earth of their God. It's the way to commune with God. And if, if one of these big trees has been um, made a sacred place, if it falls over, then that's a bad omen and you need to, to have rituals there. What, one of these trees that grew very large in Kenya um, was, was where the queen was sleeping. Uh, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, was up that tree, sleeping in a treehouse when she, uh, when her father died in England. So she went up a princess and came down a queen. Wow. That, that was uh, while she was on holiday um, in Kenya. But the, uh, the trees also featured often in the, uh, the, the Kenyan struggle for independence. So the, the rebel uh, freedom fighters from 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 Kenya were fighting against the the British uh, colonial rule, and they were using one of these fig trees as a post office because its uh, aerial roots were full of little nooks and crannies. They could use the, them to hide messages, secret messages, and um, it became known as the post office. That's so cool. There, there must be just countless stories of how figs have been so integral in the history of different cultures and different family stories and, and experiences um, all across the globe. Such a fascinating um, family of, of plants. And yeah, I, I just, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any major podcast streaming service. You can also find a full list of episodes with links at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can find Mike's book, Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, with any major bookseller, and I definitely recommend giving it a read. We've got a great lineup of shows for you this season, so be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.